Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for tuning in. A dream is coming true in Chinatown as residents watch a major milestone at the top beam signing of the new Josiah Quincy Upper School. The pride was palpable as construction workers prepared the final topping beam for hoisting on the new Josiah Quincy Upper School in Chinatown. Friday was a major stepping stone in the building's completion, and supporters of the new school from community members, students, teachers, headmasters, and construction will forever be part of the momentous occasion, signing their names on the last beam for posterity. Designed by HMFH Architects, the new six-story building will feature healthy, sustainable design, such as rooftop outdoor classrooms and solar array. The new Josiah Quincy Upper School will open for the 2024-2025 school year. 30 years ago, it was a dream of mine to have the students grow up together, you know, K to 12 together, so it's a one school. So with uh, the best curriculum, you know, with the best teacher and with the best facility for them. So that was my dream. And now it's in fruition right now. I'm happy to see this coming true. And the students are the, the beneficiary of the whole thing, you know. We don't even have a working library in our current building. So the new building uh, brings our school uh, up to standard. Uh, we've really been uh, uh, really you know, backwards in terms of our facilities for a long time. And so this is a, a step of uh, really uh, equity to bring uh, uh, adequate facilities for our immigrant children and families. This is an, a unique opportunity for our Quincy School and, uh, you know, as a feeder into our Quincy Upper School to really have a building that's going to move them forward in 21st century learning, give them the opportunity to take their international baccalaureate, a program that they have at Quincy Upper, and be able to develop it even further. Um, and it's something that's going to mean a great deal as a building, as a symbol to the community, as a place where this tight-knit, regional, you know, Chinatown community that supports one another and, you know, that means so much in our city, that they will have a building for themselves that they can also use as a community. Green energy advocates are tired of what they believe are irresponsible actions from the Massachusetts state government and their relationship with the fossil fuel industry. They gathered in downtown Boston to voice their frustrations and demand action from state leaders. No more gas! No more oil. Keep it, keep it in the soil. Activists have had enough of the alleged negligent actions of the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities. The Governor Baker-appointed DPU commissioners are accused of protecting the natural gas industry and keeping Massachusetts residents reliant on fossil fuels. Protesters from Climate Courage, Greenroots, and other groups joined forces to make their voices heard. What we're seeing is a lot of investment in infrastructure like gas infrastructure that provides a huge profit for investor-owned utilities like Eversource and National Grid, and yet all the risk of those projects and the cost of those projects are all on ratepayers and the communities that will feel the effects of climate change. So investing in these, pro in these kinds of projects result in um, an economic harm to folks directly through their, their gas bills and electric bills, but it also results in a, a harm to the, to the community because it worsens climate change and those effects are really felt by low-income uh, neighborhoods first and foremost. A trumpet played in the background of the protest, attracting attention to their cause. Governor-elect Maura Healey has criticized Baker's process and now 
Activists are calling on the newly elected governor to honor her previous statements and appoint commissioners who are dedicated to utilizing green energy throughout the Commonwealth. So the consequences, if we, if we continue to build out fossil fuels, we're going to continue to see our electricity rates increase. We're going to continue to see severe weather events like we've seen with hurricanes, massive wildfires. Quality of life is going to decrease significantly. Um, we're going to have a much less reliable energy grid, more frequent blackouts. Uh, so it's really important that we're out here today calling on the governor, calling on the, the Department of Public Utilities to stop fossil fuels, build more renewables, give some power back to the ratepayers. At 527 acres, Franklin Park is the largest in the Emerald Necklace. And it's getting an upgrade thanks to the new action plan implemented by Mayor Michelle Wu. So far, the plans include better playgrounds and updated facilities. The rest is up to residents. On Tuesday, Mayor Michelle Wu announced the release of the new Franklin Park Action Plan. The project will upgrade trails, play areas, athletic fields, and picnic sites. The plan also includes a front porch welcome area with terrace seating, as well as restoration of native plants to the landscape. Whether it's like over a game of pickup, making new friends while out with your kids, or sledding right after a snowfall, parks are spaces that build community. And so it makes sense that we will turn directly to our communities when it's time to improve our parks. At every step of the way, I want to thank our community members for ensuring that everyone's voices have been part of this Franklin Park Action Plan. And we need to go even further. We heard your call for a park with resources that were affordable and accessible for all, a space that's as safe, as an inclusive, as safe and inclusive as it is beautiful, and a park that's true to its roots and resilient enough to be enjoyed by our grandkids and their kids after them. The $28 million investment is set to revamp the historic park. And after a three-year planning process, the city is finally ready to break ground. This space for my family and so many families is a key touchstone. And so I'm really thankful for the work of this plan not just because of all the infrastructure improvements it will make, but because it will allow future generations to have even more amazing memories here. To create a roadmap for preservation, the mayor's office is requesting public input for the upcoming project, all in the hope the park's upgrades will take it to a world-class level. The public can share their ideas and view the plan details through the Franklin Park Action Plan website, www.franklinparkactionplan.com, now through February 10, 2023. Hanukkah Samir. The Hanukkah season has arrived and the Jewish community of Boston gathered on Sunday to celebrate the holiday with an a cappella concert performed by members of the Vilna Shoal. Voices of the Jewish community harmonized perfectly at the Vilna Shoal Hanukkah a cappella concert in Boston on Sunday. Everyone was singing, from performers to shoal members. Performers of all ages presented their adaptations of classic Jewish songs, all sung in Hebrew. Berkeley College a cappella group, Berkeley, wowed the room with their impressive vocal ranges and precision. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
spread joy of the Jewish faith and community through acapella. Um, I'm really happy to perform here tonight because we did it last year as well and it's just a really nice tradition and it's so nice to like be able to perform with these other groups and just have such a community of Jewish singers to be with. The Vilna Shul started as a group of Jewish immigrants and the synagogue has been a home base for the Jewish community in Boston for over a hundred years. I think that we're all about really engaging and talking and making sure everyone feels seen and heard and having the opportunity to share their ideas, thoughts, and values. So we're just really excited to be able to do that. Sunday's sold-out concert was their fifth annual event, and the Vilna Shul hopes for many more Hanukkah song celebrations. The Snowport Winter Village returns for its fourth year in the seaport. And for shoppers still finalizing gifts, they can visit the Snowport Holiday Market, which is bigger than ever and in its second year. If shopping's not your thing, there's plenty of other things to choose from. BNN reporters Sukanya Mitra and Seth Hellman take us through the Transform the Wonderland, featuring small businesses and the winter game of curling. Skincare soap, lanterns, and home decor are just a few of the many products that vendors are selling at the Seaport Holiday Market. Sydney Ortega says for the first time at the Holiday Market, her store, Simply Placed, fills up with people on the weekends. I opened our brick and mortar about a year and a half ago, um, and we just wanted to pop up and bring our store to the seaport. Olivia Sierra is a first-time shopper. I love all the options to pick multiple vendors for all my gift-giving. Yashir Danielson of Beautiful Amor Skincare says they come every year and noticed more people this year compared to last year. More traffic, definitely. I've heard people from as far as Canada come to the seaport market, which is amazing. A lot more variety in vendors. Other vendors also say their business is booming this year. A lot of her clientele from New York City sometimes travel here just to get to see her new illustrations. And Snowport has been a big boom this year. We, it was half the size last year. Now that it's grown to double the size, we're seeing even more customers. The holiday market at Seaport this year is featuring over 120 vendors, out of which 76% are owned by women. Reporting for BNN, I'm Sukanya Mitra. Boston's Snowport Celebration is an annual festival in Boston's Seaport. The area is filled with temporary shops and activities, including curling. Lois and Laura Maselli had no idea what curling was until they made a reservation to celebrate Lois's birthday. I had no idea what curling was, but it looked like an on-ice uh, shuffleboard. <laughs> but so far, it went pretty well because yeah, never having played uh, this before, she killed me. Who knew she was a master curler? <laughs> 60 years in the Navy. <laughs> Hannibal Gibson oversees the lanes and has worked at Snowport for two years. I just get a kick because it's supposed to be ice and everybody is so into it with the sticks and, and they're not realizing that the sticks are not even doing anything because there's no ice. Gibson says that from Friday to Sunday, as many as 1,000 people use the curling lanes. The curling lanes are open for reservations daily and will be available until December 31st of this year. Reporting for BNN, I'm Seth Hellman. 
looks like I got to get myself down to the snowport. Catherine Peterson is the executive director of Arts Boston, Boston's largest and most high-impact arts service organization. Under her guidance, Arts Boston has garnered significant recognition in the community, including the Commonwealth Award, the state's highest honor for the arts. Arts Boston received an acknowledgement from the Boston Theater Critics Association on its ability of bringing theater to a wider audience over the past 25 years. Today, Catherine joins us in studio to chat about the importance of the arts and the exciting holiday offerings for Bostonians. I'd love to begin with the work you and your incredible team are doing at Arts Boston. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you do there and how you are uplifting the art space here in the I city? Absolutely, would be happy to. Arts Boston is a nonprofit art service organization, which means that we work with the larger um, Greater Boston arts community, dance, music, theater, museums. We work with around 150 arts organizations. Wow. And we help them with research, with marketing and promotion to get the word out, and also with professional development. There's so much that's happening with technology and being able to um, reach people that uh, we provide uh, the latest and what's the best ways to do that. Hmm. And Arts Boston recently completed a survey, a qualitative survey, on the challenges that uh, many Boston arts institutions have faced following the pandemic. Can you share a little bit about uh, what you found? Yeah, we had actually um, spent the, the first two years of the pandemic um, doing research on audiences mm -hmm. and what they needed when um, live arts performances were not happening for a year and a half, and then how they wanted to be welcome back. And we knew from that that between 15 to 20 percent of folks uh, were not likely to come back right away. Right. And what we wanted to do, having done that research with audiences, was to check in with arts groups and to find out a year after theaters had reopened, what does it look like? And what we found is that um, it was more than 15 to 20 percent of folks who weren't coming back. On average, uh, we're seeing 25 to 40 percent fewer audiences right now. Wow. Which means, it doesn't mean they won't come back, but it means it's going to take longer. So arts organizations in Boston are facing the challenge of um, how to make it through as they are rebuilding the audiences. Um, the same kind of staff turnover and staff shortages that many other industries have uh, experienced in Boston, and also funding. Uh, when you don't have the earned revenue from ticket sales, you need to find a way to make it up. And the economy isn't terrific right now. People are worried about inflation. So we're really thinking as a community, what can we do to make sure that we help each other and make it through this time? Definitely. And I know the government stepped in as well with providing um, recovery funding for a lot of art organizations and artists to get them through. Unfortunately, a lot of that funding has ended now. So why is it important to fund the arts? Because the arts are the soul of our community. The arts are what make a place a home. And they provide so much in terms of um, helping our kids grow up, um, giving people the way to express things that they might not otherwise be able to do. 
And think about the experiences you can have with your friends and family, especially this time of year, that you're going to share as memories um, throughout the rest of your lives. Mm. And speaking of memories, uh, it is holiday season, it's December, and there's actually an abundance of holiday programming and events right around the corner. Can you share a couple of uh, those events and what incentives, if any, are available for audiences? Yeah, we're so lucky here in Boston. Um, we have everything from the Urban Nutcracker, which is Tony Williams' Uh, take on the Nutcracker with a beautiful Duke Ellington arrangement of the Nutcracker score. We have Black Nativity, which just is so joyous with the beautiful dancing and music um, celebrating Langston Hughes's text. Uh, also, uh, Christmas Celtic Sojourn uh, with Brian O'Donovan. And I also always like to check out um, Christmas Revels, uh, at the Sanders Theater, just mm -hmm. wonderful. And you know what? There are a couple non-holiday shows that I know people are going to want to enjoy over the over the break. And we have six playing about the uh, the six wives of Henry VIII, oh. um, and also um, Blue Man Group, which is just a terrific thing to take your kids to. Oh, that's, that's quite an offering. And Blue Man Group I love as well, so so glad that you, you mentioned them. So a lot of great shows. What impact do these holiday tickets have on the health of our arts sector? Actually, holiday shows help to support the work that theaters and music organizations and dance organizations do, do throughout the rest of the year. And so by supporting an arts organization, by going to their Nutcracker, by going to their Christmas Carol, by going to um, uh, a performance right now, you're really supporting the whole year. And so it makes a big difference. Filling your soul and also supporting the arts. So for our viewers who are interested in learning more about Arts Boston, how can they do so? And how can they see a full calendar of your events? They can go to artsboston.org where they'll find our comprehensive calendar, uh, which tells them all the fun things that are happening over the next month and beyond. Next up, former NYC corporate lawyer turned contemporary artist Nathan Sawaya is the first artist to ever take the Lego brick into the art world as a medium. Sawaya has earned a top position in the world of contemporary art and has created a new dimension by merging pop art and surrealism in awe-inspiring and groundbreaking ways. His touring exhibition, The Art of the Brick, is currently on display on Newberry Street now through April 23rd of next year. Here's our conversation. It's been almost 10 years since your exhibit, The Art of the Brick, has graced Boston's Faneuil Hall in 2014. And I'm so happy to say that it is officially back. Uh, it's in residence now through Sunday, April 23rd of next year at 343 Newberry Street. Uh, and I'm just curious, like, what your imagination has been cooking up the past eight years, and what are you um, excited to show in this new residency in terms of the collaborations and the new pieces? Well, you know, there's there's a big mix of things here. There's some old favorites that people are going to recognize, and there's some new things as well. Um, one of the one of the things I'm most proud of is I've I've taken on the idea of doing an installation of an entire room monochromatically in that 
It is an entire gallery that is completely pink. It also has an interactive element to it in that folks can actually, there's a big chair that folks can actually crawl up on and sit in the chair if they need a photograph or something of themselves surrounded by pink Lego. And the idea behind using pink goes back to really the start of my career. When I was first starting out, pink Lego bricks were almost impossible to find. They were the rarest of rare bricks. And so I thought, well, maybe it'd be fun to take that color and explore what I could do with it these days now that it's much more available. And uh, the, the result was an entire gallery full of all different little sculptures, but everything is pink. Mm. And speaking of Legos, you are one of the first artists to really bring Legos into the mainstream of the art world. Uh, And I'd love to know, what do you love most about the medium? What are you able to express with the Lego brick that you're not able to with more traditional mediums such as paint or clay? Well, I think, you know, Lego lends itself to being an accessible art medium, right? Uh, People can connect with this type of art because they're so familiar with this product as a toy. So that accessibility is important. It's it's almost about the democratizing of the art world because someone can come and see this exhibition and hopefully get inspired because I do believe an artist's role is to inspire. And so when they see this exhibition, my hope is they go home, they dig out their Lego bricks and they get inspired to build because I think Lego lends itself to that type of of accessibility. Hmm. And prior to becoming an artist, you were actually a corporate lawyer in New York. How did you make this transition to full-time artists and what compelled you to take that leap? Well, you know, it it was an interesting time. Uh, I mean, it goes back to... When I, was, when I was practicing law, I was doing these full days as a lawyer, and I would come home at night and need an outlet. I need to let my mind think in a different way. And so that lent itself to being creative, like drawing or painting, or sometimes even sculpting. And I, I sculpted out of other more traditional media, and it was one day I thought, what about this toy from my childhood? Could I create sculpture, but out of Lego bricks? So I started exploring it, using Lego for art, and eventually would leave the law firm behind to pursue it full time. And I can tell you, it was an interesting transition because I was going from this very secure lifestyle to something where I I really didn't know if I'd be able to pay rent the next day. Hmm. But I had found something that made me happy, and that was key. And so I followed that passion. And yes, you know, my, my friends and family were supportive. My colleagues were a mixed bag. My bosses were just confused. But that's what happens when you make a big leap like that. You, you make a change and you go in a completely different direction. I can only imagine. And when would you say that once you did make that jump, when did you feel like, okay, this is, this is really happening? Like, this is really what I'm, I'm doing now? Well, it was touch and go for a bit. I mean, I was getting commission work and that kept me going. Um, but it was really when I had my first solo exhibition and I realized wow, people are showing up to see this art that I made out of Lego. And and there was this interest that was just unprecedented. And so I realized, okay, now there's something to this. Although looking back, I still kind of thought, maybe this is it. Maybe I'll do one solo show and that would be it. But here we are 15 years later and the art of the brick is still on tour. So it's a dream come true. 
Wow, definitely a success. And I'm just curious, on average, how many Legos does it take to complete a piece? And what's been the longest stretch of time that it's taken you to complete a piece of work? Oh, wow. Well, uh, on average, let's say a life-size human form is going to use, I don't know, 15 to 20,000 bricks. And I'm going to spend up to two to three weeks working on it. Now, the longest I've ever worked on any one project, uh, well, actually, you see this Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton behind me? Yeah. I spent three months working on that thing, the entire summer. Got a bit tedious at times. That's, uh, that's quite impressive. Uh, and, you know, speaking of impressive, you've shown your work in over 100 cities, uh, in 24 countries across six continents, and it's been selling out like wildfire. Uh, what do you think it is about your work that's resonating so deeply with audiences? Well, I think there's, there's a few things going on there. I do think Lego bricks has a lot to do with it because it's this universal toy, right? I mean, I've gone to different countries and met folks who, where I don't speak the local language, but yet I can connect with them because we have this, this language of Lego, if you will. Um, and it's also this generational leaping toy. Like the bricks I had as a kid in the 1970s still snap together with the bricks of today. And that's an amazing thing for a product that it can span generations. So that has a lot to do with it. Also, there's something about this type of work that just, again, people can connect with it because of the familiarity with Lego, but also the emotion that I'm trying to put into some of these pieces. It is a show that's for the whole family because there's, there's pieces that have you know, maybe some deep emotion to them that maybe adults would appreciate more than children. There are other pieces that are very whimsical that really speak to kids. So there's a lot to see. And I think the, the whole family would, you know, they enjoy a show like this. Hmm. And what do you hope that people are able to take away from the Newberry Street residency? And how can our viewers see the work for themselves? Well, they, of course, can come at 343 Newberry to see the work. Uh, it, it's, it's here through April uh, 23. And um, my hope is that when they come through the exhibition, they are inspired. They're inspired to explore a little more creativity in their lives. I think every artist should inspire. And at the very end of this exhibition, there's actually loose Lego bricks. So if they are so inclined, they can grab some bricks and, and do some building on their own. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Files Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon. Happy holidays.